Okay, would you please turn with me to your other study outline that you'll find in there. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. If you look at the, you take your insert now, okay, and you flip it to the back side. And there on the bottom, it says, take your next step. And I want to give a challenge, like I did last Sunday, to everybody here. My goal, our goal as a church, a Purpose Church, is that every person has a Bible reading, a daily Bible reading plan as you enter into the year 2017. That's just the goal for everybody. Because, you know, we believe one of our core values here at Purpose Church is growing people change. And the way you change is spending time in God's Word. This is the way you change every day. It can't be a once a, just a once a week thing. It's got to be a daily thing. And so our goal is that everybody has a Bible reading plan and that you implement it today uh, before you go to bed. So you'll see there, you can get started um, reading the Bible today. Start a Bible reading plan. Take your next step. We believe that growing people change. And when you're following Jesus, there's always a next step to take. So as you go out to the lobby after the service is over, there's two displays, one on the south end of the lobby, one on the north end of the lobby with our Bible reading programs. If you've never done a Bible reading program, I would encourage you to take the 100-day challenge, okay? 100 days, five minutes a day for 100 days. Uh, You'll develop a new habit. If you'd like to read through the New Testament, in the next six months, there's a six-month plan. Uh, Read through the entire New Testament. only takes you five minutes a day for six months. You'll get through the entire New Testament. If you'd like to read through the whole Bible in 365 days, 15 minutes a day for every day of 2017 will take you through the entire Bible. And I would really, really encourage you to do that. Now, if you're more of a smartphone kind of person, you'll see the Bible app that's available for your smartphone. You'll see it there on the U version that's also there. And so anyway, uh, you know, there's so many applications. It's my goodness. When you go to that U version, you'll find that there's like something for everybody in all different combinations. But find something that works for you. Find a time of the day that works for you. It doesn't have to be in the morning. If you're not a morning person, don't read the Bible in the morning, okay? Uh, If you're a morning person, do it in the morning. If you're a a nighttime person, do it before you go to bed. If you're a middle of the day person, do it on your lunch break. But let's have a plan to every day uh, be uh, within God's Word because that's how we change. Now, speaking of change, uh, Marilyn Bullock from our church family sent me this story, true story from history. Maybe you've seen it before, but I just want to share it with you. It's so powerful. Um, Many years ago, Al Capone, we'll put his picture up there, he virtually owned the city of Chicago. They called him Scarface. You probably may not be able to see it up there, but he's got a big scar by his left ear, and he was the biggest gangster of all time. And he had Chicago just in the grip of bootleg booze and prostitution and murder, and he just owned, owned the city. And the reason he was able to keep out of jail, he was always one step ahead of the FBI, is because he had a lawyer by the name of Easy Eddie. And there you'll see Easy Eddie's uh, picture. And Easy Eddie uh, got him off of everything. This guy was a brilliant attorney. And he got him off, and, and Capone never went to jail while Easy Eddie was his attorney. And Capone rewarded him. I mean, got all kinds of money. His estate, Easy Eddie's estate, was so big that it filled an entire city block of Chicago. He owned a city block of of Chicago. Uh, But he did have one soft spot, uh, and that was his son. He just really, really loved his son, would give him everything. Uh, But he realized the one thing he couldn't do, living the example of the life that he lived, 
was right from wrong. He couldn't teach that to his son living the way he was. And he wanted his son to be a better man than he was. And so he couldn't pass on a good name. He couldn't pass on a good example. And so one day, Easy Eddie made a huge decision. He decided to repent. Repent. That's like a a scary negative word in our culture today. It is a beautiful word. To repent means to invite the blessings of God. To repent means to avoid the judgment of God. To repent, which simply means to go in a different direction. To read this book, the Bible, on a daily basis. And every time you see something in there that doesn't match up to your life, to repent and to say, I will bend my life to this rather than bending this or water down this to fit my lifestyle. Every time we read God's word and we repent when there's a difference with our life and turn to it, that repentance is a beautiful word. And he wanted to rectify the wrongs that he had done. And so he decided to go to the authorities, tell the truth about Al, uh, Scarface, Capone, clean up his tarnished name, offer his son some semblance of, of, of dignity. But he knew that if he testified against the mob, there'd be a price to pay. And sure enough, a year after he gave testimony against Capone that put Capone away and testified against the mob, uh, he was uh, killed execution style in a hail of machine gun fire on a lonely Chicago street. Uh, There he was. He had died, but in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift that he could give to him, and that was the gift of a new name, a new direction because of repentance. And when the police found his body, they opened up his pockets, and his pockets had a rosary, a crucifix, a religious medallion, and there was a poem clipped from a magazine in his pocket that went like this. The clock of life is wound but once, And no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop, at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own. Live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in time, for the clock may soon be still. And it had stopped for Easy Eddie, but he repented before the clock stopped. Okay, now, entirely different story. Fast forward ahead 20 years, uh, two decades a hero of World War II. Uh, One such hero was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier, Lexington, in the the South Pacific. And he did one of the most heroic actions of all of uh, of World War II. The only thing between him and his whole fleet in in the Pacific there was his plane. He got separated from the rest of his squadron, and yet he stumbled upon this uh, squadron of planes attacking his fleet, and he was the only guy there, and he, and, he, and he should have run and told other people to come for help, but instead he just attacked a squadron all by himself, shot down five of them, harassed them to the point that they called off their attack, and he saved the fleet. Uh, he became the Navy's first ace of World War II. Uh, the first naval aviator to win the Medal of Honor. A year later, Butch O'Hare is killed in aerial contact combat at the age of 29. So he did that heroic thing at the age of 28. He's killed in combat at the age of 29. But his hometown uh, never forgot what, what he did. And so they named the hometown airport in Chicago O'Hare International Airport. So that's where it gets its name from, as a tribute uh, to his courage. Now, how many of you have ever been through O'Hare in in Chicago? How many of you have ever been stranded in O'Hare in Chicago? Okay. Now, the next time you get stranded at O'Hare, 
Uh, this memorial to Butch O'Hare is located between Terminal 1 and 2. I'm going to give you something to do with your time when you're stranded there, okay? And between Terminal 1 and 2, there's this memorial to him. So you say, okay, Glenn, what do these two stories have in common with each other? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. He was the son of Easy Eddie. So here, this, this guy he repented, and he didn't see the result of his repentance in his own uh, lifetime, okay? He, did, he didn't see that. But uh, he did, from heaven, see it in the change of his family tree in his son. And maybe you won't even see immediately in your life the, the difference that reading the Bible every day, when you see something different in your life from what the Bible says, repenting of that, bending your life to God's Word, you may not even see it in your lifetime, but I guarantee it's going to echo through the years into eternity. When we read, we repent and obey. Now, um, with that whole uh, challenge of Bible reading, the Bible is going to change your life. But as you read through it, when I launch you on a Bible reading plan, okay, I want you to know that there are certain parts of the Bible that are going to raise questions when you come to them. And there are a handful of stories, not the majority, I'd say 99% of what you read in the Bible, you're just like, awesome, man, I need to change my life, let's live according to that. But there's about 1%, not even that, 0.1% of stories that are going to disturb you when, when you read them in Scripture. Now, Satan is going to use those stories. He's going to whisper in your ear, how can you count on a book with those kind of wacky stories in it? Uh, critics of the Bible um, use these to attack Christianity. Okay, So here's the one principle I want you to remember today. Whenever you encounter something in the Bible that you don't understand or that disturbs you, do two things. Dig deeper and get more information. That's what I want you to do. Dig deeper and get more information. Because many things that appear one way on the surface, when you get dig beneath the surface, they are very different than they look when you first encounter them. How many of you have ever been on a jury? Anybody here ever been on a jury? Okay, I get stuck on juries all the time. I don't know what it is. Uh, the, the myth is, is that pastors never get on juries because the, the idea is, is that the prosecution uh, doesn't want them because they think they're mamby-pamby and merciful and grace and everything. And the defense wasn't, doesn't want them because they think they're legalistic and rules and judgmental. And so, but that has never been true for me. There's something about my face that people want me on their jury. I don't know what it is. Okay. And, and so, so at any rate, I've been on juries. But if you've ever been on a journey, you know how it is. One attorney comes up there, presents his or her case, and you're like, what are we sitting here for? This should be over in five minutes. This is obvious. This is slammed up. Then the next attorney comes up for the opposing view and begins to bring more witnesses and more testimony and more context to the situation. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, this is the exact opposite of what I thought it was when I first encountered it on the surface, okay? So that's exactly the way it is with these difficult, disturbing stories in the Bible. On the surface, you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? You dig beneath the surface, surface there are often very good explanations and understanding of what's going on. So, I just want to give you an example of one of those. We kind of had this standalone Sunday in between two series, okay? We finished our Christmas series. Next Sunday, I'll start a new series. But we've got this kind of standalone week. And so I thought because I was doing this Bible reading challenge last Sunday and this Sunday, I would pick the, the toughest story to explain in all the Bible. And this is informal. It's not a formal survey. But in, they've done surveys of people and ask them, what's the most disturbing story in the Bible? 
And this one we're dealing with today is that story, okay? 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. From there, Elisha, who was a prophet of God, went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on about Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Now that is my favorite story in the Bible. I want you to know, I, I, I think that thing is awesome. All right. You know, uh, kids, don't make fun of your pastor's baldness. He'll sick the bears on you, you know. Just like fantastic. But it's not the favorite of, of many other people. Okay, it's one of those disturbing ones. At, at, on the surface, it appears to say this. God kills children for making jokes, okay? Or uh, prophets have a lousy sense of humor. <laughs> uh, pastors have no sense of humor. You tease us, we stick the bears on you. And the critics of the Bible use this story. They, they love this story. There's a British newspaper columnist uh, who said, how could anybody follow a God that believes in feeding children to bears? Okay, who, who could follow that God that feeds children uh, to bears? And so they, they use this to attack us. So I thought we'd take on the toughest one, okay, to just as an example that if there are answers, possible answers for that story, then maybe, just maybe, there are answers to other stories or parts of the Bible that disturb you when you come across them. Andrew Wilson writes, this is not a story about little kids having playground banter. This is a story about the clash between true and false gods and true and false uh, prophets. Okay, so let's dig deeper. Now remember, this story happened 2,800 years ago, 2,800 years ago, 800 B.C. It was a different part of the world. It was a different culture. And so we've got to dig deeper rather than just have a surface interpretation as Southern Californians in the 21st century. Now, first of all, a question might come up. Oh, were there really bears back then in, in Israel? You don't think of Israel and bears? Oh, absolutely. Historians tell us that the, the type of the, the Latin name for the type of bear was Ursus Syriaticus which meant uh, Ursus for bear, Syriacus, which means the general area of Syria around there. That was the type of bear. They were very common in Israel at that time, and they were known for being uh, ferocious. They were common, and they were ferocious. Now, the bigger problem with this passage is when you first look at it, we imagine a group of kindergarten boys uh, having harmless fun. That's not what's going on here. The Hebrew word that's translated boy here is nar or nahar. It is also the word in the Bible, it applies to Isaac, uh, the son of Abraham, when he's 28 years old. It's used for Joseph when he's either 17 or 39 years old. It's the word used for Joshua when he's serving beside Moses in the tabernacle. Uh, King Abimelech in the book of uh, Judges, it's the word used for his armor bearer, the assistant he would take with him into hand-to-hand combat in battle. It's used for the grown sons of Jesse, not for little David that's out with the sheep, but for the grown sons of Jesse, this is the word that is used for them when Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel. King Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon, it's used for King Rehoboam's uh, young royal advisors, so young advisors to the king. 
Uh, these are not four-year-old advisors, okay? These are young men. Solomon uses the same word to describe himself when he is both married and the newly crowned king of Israel. So first of all, these are young men. They are not children. Now the second thing to observe about this is these young men are coming out of a town called Bethel. Now Bethel was one of the two centers for idolatry, for Satan worship in Israel at this time. Let's look at the background uh, to Bethel. Back to the time of Jeroboam. After seeking advice, the king, who was Jeroboam at that time, made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. He says, you know, don't bother to go to the place that God said you were supposed to get his truth from. Do something that's more convenient for your lifestyle. Don't bother to follow what's in this book, the Bible. Just kind of make it up whatever's convenient for you in your own backyard of your life. Do what's convenient. Do what works for you, what feels good for you. Don't have to go to Jerusalem here are more convenient gods in your backyard at Bethel and Dan. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he goes on to say, one he set up in Bethel, and the other he sets up in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship these golden calves. Really was Satan worship, uh, idolatry that was going on at this time. Now, look at God's judgment on this. Uh, the next chapter in chapter 13 by the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Okay? That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Rehoboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar of Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Okay, now look what happens. Also, the altar was split apart, and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. But look at the mercy of God. Remember, whenever you find the judgment of God, right side by side with it, you find the mercy of God. You know, there's this myth that the New Testament is all about mercy and grace, and the Old Testament's all about law and judgment. Absolutely untrue. There's plenty of judgment for sin in the New Testament along with the mercy and grace. And there's plenty of grace and mercy in the Old Testament alongside of the judgment and the law. Here's an example. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Okay. So um, this Bethel is a center for Satan worship. So young men coming out of Bethel and immediately taunting the Lord's prophet were most likely associated with the city's idolatrous shrine with this satanic cult, almost like a satanic priest in, in training, almost like a seminary for Satan pastors, okay, is what it was. So this is not a bunch of little kids making fun, play yard banter with, with, uh, with Elisha. Uh, this is a showdown between true gods and false gods and true prophets and false prophets. Now, even the phrase, get out of here, baldy, it's loaded with meaning. This story happens right after Elijah, who was Elisha's mentor, goes, goes up to heaven. Okay, so let's, let's look at that story. Second uh, Kings 2, uh, verse 3. Okay, Second Kings chapter 2, verse 3. The company of the prophets at Bethel. Okay, now the, these, these are prophets of the true God. This is a seminary 
for Bible-believing pastors, okay? The company of the prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today, your mentor, your head, your master, okay? So then we go on to the next verse. As they were walking along, Elisha and Elijah, and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a, in a whirlwind. Okay, so um, uh, this story here is not about a receding hairline, okay? This is that when they said, go up, O Baldy, what they mean is your head, your covering, your master has been taken away. So because he's gone, you are now prophetically powerless. So you might as well leave as well because the power left with him, you are powerless. We don't have to worry about you. You are powerless. Your, your head, your, your master, your mentor has gone. There's also a bit of mocking of the biblical principle that someday God is going to come and take his people out of the world. There's a hint of that here, 800 B.C., 800 years later. Peter says 2,000 years ago, 800 years after that story, 2,000 years ago, he says the same thing will be true for us today. After all, you must understand that in the last days, is 2017 part of the last days? I don't know. Sure got a lot of character traits for it. it says in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Not what we find within God's Word, but their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he, Jesus, promised? Where's this second coming that Jesus talked about? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, one final detail of, of this story. And, and hang with me. Um, do you feel like you're drinking, taking a sip from a fire hose right now? You know, and I and just want you to know, I, I have been all week just saturating in this, and I feel exactly uh, the same way. But it's, it's fascinating stuff. Hang with me. One final detail is that Elisha is on his way to Mount Carmel. Now, look at the parallels between Elijah's ministry. He does three things to demonstrate that he's a prophet of God. And Elisha, uh, his, who, who's been mentored by him, uh, the mantle of prophecy falls on Elisha, and he does exactly the same three, three things. If you read through it, maybe you're going to want to go home this afternoon and um, after the Packers game, read uh, about uh, Elijah and Elisha and read chapters before and after that. Okay. Uh, Elijah, okay, the first one, Elijah followed by Elisha. Elijah began his ministry by showing power over water. He prays for a drought and judgment on Israel, and the drought comes. Uh, he confronts and defeats the false prophets at Mount Carmel through fire coming from the sky to vindicate him uh, with, his, with his sacrifice. And he re then he releases healing on the land through rain. So he's known, his, his ministry is known by control over water, control over fire, or confronting these prophets and defeating them, and then releasing healing on the land. Now, Elisha now begins his ministry that has now fallen to him Okay, the baton's been passed to him when Elijah goes to heaven. Now, see if you see some care similarities. He immediately takes the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from Elijah, and he strikes the water of the Jordan River with it, and all these uh, seminary students are watching this, okay? Do we trust Elisha the way we trusted Elijah? Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. Control over water, just like 
uh, was assigned in Elijah's ministry. Now, in the meantime, before we get to the next verse, there's this uh, spring that has polluted or poisonous water in it in this one particular town. So they say to Elisha, can you do anything about this? Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I've healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive once again. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word of Elisha had, had spoken. Okay, so he now does his ministry, and we see those same three things going on that we saw in the ministry of Elijah. He demonstrates control over water. He, re, he releases healing on the land. He confronts false prophets with bears, the way Elijah did with fire, and then he goes on to Mount Carmel. So, Anybody seeing these events back then, and us as the reader now, would say what they said in verse 15. The company of the prophets from Jericho, these are the true seminary students, the the seminary students there from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him, not to worship him, but to show him respect, because now he has the prophetic mantle on him the way that Elijah Now, hang with me. Let's finish with the good part. Now it gets really good. Here's what God is also saying in this passage, okay? In the same way, Elijah was the forerunner to the ministry of Elisha. And Elisha did many more miracles than Elijah. In the same way, 800 years later, John the Baptist is the forerunner for the ministry of Jesus. Elijah is like John the Baptist, the fiery prophet who calls for repentance, confronts the wicked King Herod, the same way if you look in the story, uh, Elijah confronts the wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Um, Elisha foreshadows Jesus. He's like a picture of Jesus in 800 B.C. Uh, Elisha was the provider of miraculous food and water. Who does that sound like? Sound like Jesus, a feeding of the 5,000. And the same way Elisha does it. In a story we're going to look at next week, even though I'm starting a new series, the, the main passage we're going to work through is a story from the life of Elisha. Just as weird as this one, not as disturbing as this one. Okay, it won't bother you like this one does, but just as awesome and just as interesting as, as you dig into the details of it. That's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to do, that's what I'm going to teach on next Sunday. Um, Elisha, as you read through his story, he was a healer of lepers. Who else do we know was a healer of lepers? Elisha was a person who raised people from the dead. Who do we know that raised people from the dead? Um, He's even, Elisha, the one whose death leads to the life of others. There's a really weird story where even after Elisha dies, his bones are in this grave. And there's a bunch of people years later, and it's just his bones there, and they're burying another guy but this, this group of robbers comes that's going to attack them. And so they can't finish burying them. So they take the bottle, they chuck it into the grave, and they run. As soon as the dead body hits the bones of Elisha, the guy springs back to life once again. Now that's to foreshadow 800 B.C. what Jesus did, that by his death it leads to life for others. And so Elisha is an 800 B.C. picture of the ministry of Jesus that was to come centuries later. Now Jesus, like Elisha, like Joshua, 
Their names are all mean the same thing in the Hebrew in, in, in scriptures. Jesus, Elisha, Joshua has a name that means Yahweh or God is salvation. Okay, so Jesus starts his ministry at the Jordan River after being baptized and launched by John the Baptist, just like Elisha does being launched by Elijah, who was his uh, mentor. And so Jesus, newly commissioned by his predecessor, John the Baptist, just like Elijah and Elisha. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus faces immediate opposition by being tempted um, by Satan in the desert. Remember that? Right after the baptism of Jesus, he immediately goes into the desert and he's tempted by Satan. But he overcomes his foe, Satan, with unconventional weapons. And so in the same way, uh, his namesake in Scripture, uh, Joshua fights Jericho with trumpets. Elisha fights idolatrous priests with bears. And Jesus fights the devil with Scripture. And every single time, God wins. Anybody want to say amen to that? Now, despite this opposition, God's purpose has prevailed. Now, do I expect you after that explanation to say, oh, Glenn, this is now my favorite story in the Bible. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's still weird, okay? It's still a weird story. Did you follow every last detail of what I just said? Don't worry about it. It's no, it's no big deal. I just wanted to give you an example that if we can take the toughest story, the one that the, our critics of our faith and of the Bible use more than any other story to bash us over the heads, and if I could show you that one, okay, this is just an example, that any story that you read that seems to be weird on the surface has other stuff going on beneath the surface, okay? Now, are we always going to be able to figure it out? No, because God's ways are higher than ours, okay? He's so much smarter than us. We're not going to figure out everything. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, Paul writes in Corinthians, that right now we see like through a dirty window, but when we get to heaven, the window's going to be clean. We're going to see him face to face, and he's going to explain what was up with the bears, Okay? And he's going to either say, Glenn was a little bit close, or he's going to say, your pastor was a moron. Here's what's really, uh, what was going on there, okay? Uh, One of those things is going to happen. But here's the point of all this. You can trust this book, even when it's disturbing and hard to understand. You can trust it. You can base your life on it. I love that, that, that saying, all that I understand about my creator leads me to trust him in that which I don't understand. Uh, every, everything I understand uh, about my creator leads me to trust him in what I can't understand. And everything I understand about this book leads me to trust him in the things that I do not yet understand. Now, that doesn't mean we don't dig deeper because many times we will find our answers easily, easily, if we just go beneath the surface. But sometimes we won't get answers until heaven but all that we understand about it leads us to trust him in what we, uh, what we don't understand um, about it. Now, this is a very unusual passage to launch into an invitation to follow Christ, but I think it's perfect because I think the bears are good news bears, not bad news bears. These bears are preaching the good news. The good news of Jesus is found from cover to cover in this book, even in the most unusual places. Let me show you how, um, if you take out that resource guide that you'll see there right in front of you, there in the book rack's card looks just like this, a resource, how to become a follower of Jesus. 
Look at the ABCs there. A, admit your condition before God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, myself at the front of the line, are like those mocking young men making fun of, of, of the things of God. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. We've all sinned. And so we got a problem here. Number two, B, believe that Jesus Christ is God's only solution to our condition. Now here's the problem. The wages of sin is spiritual death. You know what we all deserve? We all deserve to be mauled by bears coming out of the woods. Every one of my sins deserves bear attack. It's spiritual death is what I deserve, okay? Because there's a separation between a holy God and an unholy us. But, and don't you love that little three-letter word in the Bible? Makes all the difference. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just like that wicked King Jeroboam. Boy, talk about if God can forgive him, he can forgive whatever you've done in your life. You say, oh, Glenn, you don't know what I've done. King Jeroboam set up idols to worship Satan and persuaded the people of Israel to worship Satan instead of God. And yet still, when he said, pray for me that I'll get healed, God has such a soft heart, a sensitive, merciful heart that he forgave even him. And if he can, believe, if he can forgive Jeroboam, he can forgive whatever you've done. Absolutely. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you gotta choose. Number three, choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Lord, it's a choice. You gotta choose to walk on the bridge of the cross. Jesus says, I tell you, whoever hears my word, which you've been doing, even in the story of the bears, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. No bears for you, okay? But has crossed over from death to life. But it's a choice you've got to make. You've got to choose to trust Christ. It's a choice. You know, sometimes we wish that God had just programmed us to choose the right things, to choose life, to choose love. But then we'd be robots, and God didn't want a bunch of robots. He wanted children who have a choice. He could have just programmed us to do good, but he gave us a free choice. And look at the mess we've made in the world. And you know what we do? We shake our fist at God. No, God gave us the choice, and we brought this on ourselves, okay? But we can choose to follow his plan to be rescued and forgiven. And in heaven, there will be, there will be no opportunity for sin. But he wanted, you, you want your children, as much as I know, there are certain days, okay, let's have, honest parental time here. Ever been a day when you wish you could program your children for good? I mean, just, just to the grocery store, just flip a switch on the back and make them robots just for the drive to church or something like that, you know. Just, just flip on the switch, you know, just that one. No, you know, we, we want our children's love to be chosen because otherwise it would not be true love. True story, absolute true story. When I asked Kimberly's dad if I could marry her, he had a shotgun in his hand. True story, true story. Now, we were deer hunting. That was the explanation behind it, okay? We were out deer hunting. And, and the gun was not pointed at me, okay? It was pointed down. But, but if it had been pointed on me, that wouldn't be true love, would it? You know, okay, that would be, what would we call a shotgun wedding? Okay, that's what that would be, all right? Um, um, and so he wants us to choose. And I want to give you a chance to choose right now. What better way to start a new year than to choose to open your heart, to receive his forgiveness, the good news 
that even the bears in this obscure story have brought to us here today. So would you pray silently as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said. Amen. A couple of things before we go. Um, if you prayed that prayer, we've got a gift for you we'd love to give you as a church. It's at the Connect Center in the center of the lobby. If you'd like to talk to somebody, somebody would love to talk with you if that would be encouraging. But if you don't, no pressure, no obligation. If you just want to take these resources to help you in your new walk with, with Jesus, just take them. No pressure whatsoever. If you'd like to talk to somebody, there's somebody there. But if you just want to get this gift, we would love um, to give that to you. Remember the prayer guide. Let's not walk off this campus until we have a plan to read the Bible every day in 2017. Okay, let's make a plan. And if you miss a day, it's okay. God loves you still. You just skip a day. Oh, I blew it. Try again the next day. You know, like the 100 days. Maybe you'll take 150 days to get through 100 days. That's fine. Just, but we won't, nothing will happen unless we have a plan. Okay, to not have a plan is, we won't, it's not going to happen. So let's at least have a plan uh, and let's implement that before we go uh, to bed tonight. If you like prayer for anything, the prayer room is open on the main floor to my left, to your right. Prayer team, prayer partners would love to pray with and for you if in any way that would be an encouragement. Okay, let's stand up and let's close with our benediction. It's two verses. Um, Jude, another unusual book in the Bible, verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.